0: California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a webpage that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? This episode contains details involving the murder of a young child and may be distressing for some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. 13-month-old Zachary Andrew Turner was left in the care of his mother. And it feels like there are a million reasons why he never should have been. Why we, the rest of the world, should never have come to know who Zachary was. And why we should never be here talking about him today. To get to the heart of what all went wrong here, We have to trace the long history of the killer that is at the center of this tragedy and to understand that we are not just sitting here with the advantage of hindsight. It was obvious that Zachary's mother should not have been in charge of his care, especially without direct supervision. But those who could have made a difference in what would be Zachary's fate chose to circumvent the warning signs and gave his mother the benefit of the doubt. Zachary had spent all of exactly one year and one month on this earth when his mother decided that he would live no more, when she leapt into the North Atlantic Ocean off a fishing wharf on Conception Bay South in Newfoundland, almost as far east as one could possibly travel to in Canada with Zachary attached to her body. One minor respite is in the moment that he died. Zachary did not suffer. How is it that this woman standing on the edge of that wharf with her baby attached to her come to decide that they both needed to die? She was a doctor, so clearly she had an accomplished, capable, capable, brilliant mind somewhere along the line it became damaged broken how why the answers at least some of them lie in a very complicated past the following information comes directly from the Turner Review and Investigation of 2006 conducted by the Newfoundland and Labrador Child and Youth Advocates Delegates Shirley Jane Turner, and I usually prefer to reference killers by their last names, but when one or more person in the story has the same last name, I will opt to use their first name. So to keep things simple, we will just call her Shirley. She was born to a United States serviceman originally from Kansas who had been stationed in St. Anthony, Newfoundland, Canada, when he met Shirley's mother. After his time in St. Anthony was complete, he and her mother returned to Kansas and established a home in Wichita. Together, they had four children, one of them being Shirley, born January 28, 1961. When she was just seven, Shirley's parents separated in 1968. Her mother returned to Newfoundland and brought her and her three siblings with her. Since she was born in the United States and eventually established residency in Canada, Shirley was entitled to dual citizenship. And this also gave her the right to be in possession of a passport from both the United States and Canada. She would eventually obtain both passports and this enabled her to not only freely travel between the two countries, but also seek employment in both as well. It's been said that Shirley, her mother and her siblings lived a nomadic existence, with their only income being by way of the Canadian welfare system. They first settled in Daniels Harbor, which is located on the great northern peninsula of Newfoundland. In Dreamers, I was slightly confused about this particular province in Canada because it's called Newfoundland and Labrador, but it's mostly referred to as Newfoundland. And there is a part of the province that is attached to the mainland of Canada that shares a border with only one other province, Quebec. But then there's this island in the North Atlantic, which is also part of Newfoundland. And it's on this island part that the relevant portions of the story takes place. There are lots of peninsulas, waterways, coves, bays, harbors, havens. There are so many nooks and crannies, there's even a place called Random Island. So the family first settled in Daniels Harbor, as I said, located on the Great Northern Peninsula. They later moved to Portland Creek, about 10 kilometers or a little more than six miles away. And from many accounts, those who knew the family as Shirley grew up, her mother was a very frugal woman. It wasn't too long after that move that Shirley's mom began a long-term relationship with a man, but very little is known about their relationship. Shirley attended school in Daniels Harbor until she graduated in 1980. Early on, Shirley had made a promise to herself that she wanted more for her life than what she had growing up. She wanted to embark upon a professional, successful career and never find herself in the position her own mother found herself in, a single mom dependent on government assistance. She attended school at what is now called Memorial University, where her interests were in science and education. She spent her first undergraduate year at the Sir Wilfred Grenfell campus in Cornerbrook, which is a couple hours' drive south of where she was raised. Shirley spent her second undergraduate year at the university's St. John's campus. It was during this time that she was involved in a long-distance relationship with a young man who lived in Parsons Pond, which is up near where she grew up. In the fall of 1981, Shirley became pregnant. On December 28, 1981, during her winter break from university, Shirley and this man got married in Parsons Pond. It was the first marriage for both of them. In the following month, she went back to finish her second undergraduate year. On July 9, 1982, Shirley gave birth to her first child, a son. Her husband would be the one to stay home and care for their son while she continued to focus on her studies. Shirley's relationship with her husband's mom, her mother-in-law, was strained. And it's been said that Shirley was the one who was the source of the friction between them. She refused to allow her son's paternal grandmother to have any active role in his life or to acknowledge her in any way. Years later, Shirley would lean on this very same woman for support as she navigated her own troubled life over the next two decades until the end. It would be her firstborn's grandmother that would make all the arrangements when it was time for Shirley to be laid to rest. During the summer break of 1982, Shirley stayed in Parsons Pond with her husband and son. But when she began her third undergraduate year, they moved with her to St. John's. In April of 1983, they moved back to the Great Northern Peninsula to spend the summer. It was during her time as an undergraduate student that Shirley began to aspire to become a doctor, and it has been said that her main motivation was to enjoy the financial benefits of embarking on a career in medicine, again to avoid ever living in poverty. In August of 1983, Shirley, her husband and son, moved to Labrador City, where Shirley worked as a science teacher for the next four years, until June of 1987. Labrador City is on the mainland part of Newfoundland, in the far west, very close to the border of Quebec. And by all accounts, Shirley was a popular and well-liked teacher. It was during this time teaching, on April 13, 1985, that Shirley gave birth to their second child, a daughter. But the marriage soon hit the skids while the couple were living in Labrador City. At some point, Shirley became involved with an old flame from a previous relationship, a fisherman from Cornerbrook. She was sneaking off to have secret liaisons with this former boyfriend, and while I'm not clear how far apart they were at the time, she was frequently going to see him, and he was along the south coast, which is quite a distance from Labrador City, to be trying to have a secret affair. And what Shirley would do was when she was visiting this man, she would bring her two children with her, while most of the time her husband would be unable to get the time off from his work from the Iron Ore Company of Canada, so he couldn't go with them. She would then leave the children with a relative in Parsons Pond and continue on to see this other man. When she was done, she would go back, pick up her kids, and head back to Labrador City. This led to the deterioration of Shirley's first marriage, and when the couple separated in June of 1987, she left Labrador City with her kids. The marriage of a little more than six years ended in divorce on January 29, 1988, just one day after Shirley's 27th birthday. Where Shirley was and what she was doing from June of 87 to June of 88 is vague but she did settle down with her two kids in Deer Lake, about an hour and a half from Parsons Pond. She was apparently collecting unemployment benefits at the time. It's called employment insurance in Canada. In July of 1988, Shirley terminated a pregnancy. The relationship with the man Shirley was having an affair with turned into a committed one, and the couple got married on July 22nd. 1988, just six months after the finalization of her divorce from her first husband. They wed in Corner Brook, and sometimes they lived on the Great Northern Peninsula and other times they settled in Deer Lake. Shirley maintained custody of her two children during this time. From 1988 to 1993, Shirley again found work as a teacher in both Cowhead and Deer Lake. Her last teaching position was with Deer Lake Integrated School Board, from which she resigned in June of 1993. It was also during this period of time that Shirley gave birth to the only child that she would have with her second husband, a daughter, born March 8, 1990. It wasn't long after the birth of their daughter that Shirley and her husband began having troubles in their marriage and they separated on March 20, 1991. When Shirley completed her fifth year of teaching at Cowhead and Deer Lake, her youngest child was three, and her two older children were eight and eleven. It was after her resignation that she decided to resume her studies at university for another year in order to obtain her bachelor's degree. But for some reason, Shirley's family did not agree with that decision. She had three young children to care for, those they thought should have been her priority. But Shirley told them it was only a year, she would finish her degree, and she would go back to teaching. Shirley would go on to complete her fourth and final undergraduate year by April of 1994, graduating the next month in May, with her degree from Memorial University. Shirley did not manage this achievement on her own, however. She went to St. John's the previous fall in 1993 with her three children and rented an apartment. Her estranged second husband, and they had been separated for two and a half years by this time, well he came to St. John's in October of 1993 to help take care of the child that he had with Shirley as well as her two other children from her first marriage while she finished her studies. They lived in the same apartment but maintained distance and separation. Shortly after, Shirley's estranged husband came to St. John's. A report was made to the Department of Social Services. Today, it's called the Ministry of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. An allegation was made that there was physical and other abuses going on in the home being committed by Shirley. Shirley had taken on a roommate to help offset the cost of the apartment. And that roommate became concerned and upset by what he alleged was Shirley's ongoing mistreatment of two out of her three children and it was because of this treatment that he decided to move out. This man also shared his concerns with his therapist. That therapist would later tell the Department of Social Services that the roommate witnessed the older daughter, and this would be Shirley's daughter from her first marriage, who would have been eight years old at this time, being struck in the face for no apparent reason. He said that Shirley cursed at her and sometimes at her son, also from the first marriage, and he would be 11 years old at this time. He alleged that Shirley left the 8-year-old at home on most weekends and evenings with no supervision, and that she went to school by bus, also by herself, and that most of the abuse was directed mainly at this 8-year-old daughter. Shirley's two oldest children were interviewed by a social worker in the presence of their school principal at their school in St. John's. They said that their mom disciplined them by sending them to their rooms for timeouts, that she spanked them with her hand and sometimes a belt. The children confirmed the details of the abuse that had been reported, but it was determined that, at the time, the children did not have any physical signs of abuse or exhibited any behavioral problems. Shirley's estranged husband was also interviewed, and he told the social worker that Shirley was the one in charge of discipline. He was aware that she was using timeouts and spanking with her hand, and it was his belief, to the best of his knowledge, that the belt was only used as a threat. Three attempts were made by social services to make contact with Shirley. Three messages were left, but she never responded. The department's case record states, attempted to have conversation with Shirley to discuss situation. She was at the Memorial University and could not be contacted during the day. The file regarding the abuse was closed a little more than two months later on January 11th, 1994, without Shirley ever having been spoken to. And dreamers, we may have just arrived at one of the many reasons I mentioned at the opening of this episode, why we shouldn't be here today talking about this story. During the summer of 1994, after completing her undergraduate degree, Shirley, visiting her family back on the Great Northern Peninsula, announced that she was returning to Memorial University that fall to enter the Faculty of Medicine, which I'm going to call medical school from this point forward, to obtain her medical degree. She said she intended to do so without taking her children with her. In September of 1994, Shirley was accepted into medical school and subsequently enrolled. She left the peninsula for St. John's, leaving her children behind. Her two oldest children, then 9 and 12 years of age, stayed with their paternal grandmother, the same woman that Shirley had refused to allow to have any role in their lives while she was married to their father. Conveniently, father lived next door, so those kids are in good hands for now. Her youngest child was sent to live with their father, also in good hands. Shirley began her second year of medical school in September of 1995, but this time she had her children with her, and they stayed with her for the entire academic year. What Shirley did in terms of child care while she was in school or working in the lab is unknown. She began her third year in medical school in September of 1996, and her children remained with her, and again, what she did for childcare is not known. But what is known is that by February of 1997, Shirley told her family that her obligations to her studies were simply too much, and she could not live up to her obligations as a parent to her three children. Now, if you're wondering how Shirley is supporting herself through all this, I'll stop and explain what I know up to this point. I do know that she is regularly receiving child support from both the fathers of her three children. But in Canada, they have this thing called baby bonuses. I'm not exactly clear on how this program works, but from what I've been told, they just give you money for each child you have. And I guess Shirley was given a certain amount of money by the government each month, which she said she was placing into scholarship funds for her children so that they would someday be able to attend university. She later told a relative that she had cashed out all those scholarships to pay for her living expenses and education, with the expectation of going on to earn big money, and she herself would put her children through school. It was also said that Shirley took out various student loans, but those loans were calculated as if Shirley had full-time custody of her three children, which she did not, at least not in any consistent manner. So after almost seven years of separation, Shirley and her second husband finalized their divorce on February 21st, 1997. Shirley was granted custody of their daughter that they shared. But within days of the divorce proceedings having been completed and Shirley being given custody of their child, that child was back living with her father in Portland Creek. The older children were back living in Parsons Pond with their paternal grandmother. This arrangement for the children would remain in place for the remainder of Shirley's time in medical school. It was also around this time that Shirley's mother and her partner, and I don't believe that they ever got married, their relationship was starting to go sour. He became very sick, so Shirley's mom up and left, moving west to the Canadian province of Ontario, while her partner stayed behind and continued living in his home in Daniels Harbor. This was reportedly very distressing for Shirley because this man had been in her life for so long and had taken on a fatherly-like role. She had bonded with him and maintained a relationship with him until he passed away. We can't say for sure, but we can wonder if the way that her own mother behaved towards her relationship, if that had any sort of impact on how that would affect Shirley for the rest of her own life and the decisions that she would make. So now that Shirley had sent her three children to live on the Great North Peninsula, she completed her third year of medical school by the spring of 1997. She finished up her fourth year from the fall of 97 to the spring of 98. And in May of 1998, Shirley Turner became Dr. Shirley Turner. For the next two years from 1998 to 2000, Shirley continued her medical training as an intern and then as a resident at various Newfoundland teaching hospitals in St. John's, Corner Brook, Norris Point, St. Anthony and Grand Falls. Her residency was in family medicine and part of it in St. Anthony was with Grenfell Regional Health Services. When her residency with Grenfell ended in 2000, Shirley received a letter dated September 5th, 2000 that said in part, quote, your willingness to undertake part of your training with Grenfell in a fashion that was also a positive contribution to the delivery of health care to the people of Southeast Labrador was commendable. We were all impressed by your openness to ideas and suggestions and your cheerfulness. But Shirley's residency at St. John did not receive nearly as glowing of an appraisal of her work. A senior member of the medical faculty and two other doctors were responsible for supervising her. In a statement requested by the constabulary on December 1st, 2001, they, who were operating a family practice clinic in St. John, had supervised Shirley for two periods of time during her two-year residency, once from November 11th to December 8th of 1999, and then again from February 3rd to April 26, 2000. When Shirley arrived for the first of these two residency periods, she was two days late. Then she provided a list of days convenient for her to work with the expectation that another resident and the doctors would tailor their schedules to work around hers. Then, when one of the supervising doctors made a critical comment of the progress of her residency, Shirley demanded that the comment be expunged. She became quite hostile. She was yelling, crying, and accusing the doctor of treating her unfairly and twice hung up the phone on the doctor when making this expungement demand over the phone. This doctor later discovered that Shirley had told him lies and forcibly argued her case by accusing the doctor of improper supervision. She told this doctor that all of her previous residency evaluations were all above average and nobody ever had a problem with her performance. But when he looked further into it, he was able to establish that this was, in fact, untrue. This doctor caught Shirley in another lie when she asked to leave the residency period a day early to visit her children in western Newfoundland. He wished her well, he told her to drive safely, but then he saw her the very next day at the medical school. The second residency period I mentioned a moment ago things did not improve when it came to the doctor's professional impression of Shirley. This residency was considered to be remedial, and it was because of the negative evaluations and some of Shirley's behaviors during the earlier residency. For that reason, she went back to the same doctor and his two colleagues for further evaluation. This doctor would later tell the constabulary that Shirley missed nine days in a three-month rotation, where most residents miss about one day in an entire year. She used excuses like her children being sick, and at the time, they lived 500 kilometers or 310 miles away, or she had a migraine, or she would have no excuses at all. There was an occasion when one doctor asked Shirley why she missed a residency day, and she said that she was up all night tending to one of her children who was sick. When he told her that none of her children lived nearby, she said that she was on the phone until 2 in the morning as one of her kids was sick and the attending doctor had given the wrong antibiotic. So she had to get a pharmacist up to go to his pharmacy to obtain the correct antibiotic. The children's caregiver at the time would later say that this never happened. Following this remedial residency rotation, the supervising doctor discovered that some reports Shirley made to him of her clinical findings and treatment of patients that she saw during that rotation were untrue. One patient stopped coming to his family practice clinic shortly after an encounter with Shirley. He and his two colleagues were so concerned about Shirley's dealings with confrontation and truthfulness that they would never give her feedback or hold any major discussions with her alone. It was the only time in 21 years of teaching that this doctor had ever had to take this approach in dealing with a resident in this manner. He said in the end, he felt he was being manipulated every time he spoke with Shirley. With the negative things that would come up, she would change the subject to one of his failures. She could be charming, friendly, and lively, but when caught in a lie, she would become angry, accusatory, and loud. He always felt that Shirley was putting on a show, as if she were playing the role, but had no feeling for her work. He could never recall a trainee like Shirley in that her approach lacked personal commitment and her relationships with people seemed to be superficial when compared to the over 400 residents he had supervised during his 21-year teaching career. Okay, so knowing what we know, this is also another big warning sign about the kind of person Shirley is, as she seems to be quite unstable. Not that this would have been a precursor to what she would ultimately end up doing, but to me, it should have been taken very seriously when it came to licensing Shirley to practice medicine. I mean, these are personality traits that are completely opposite for being in the field of medicine, especially in working directly with patients, or any job for that matter that involves interacting with the public. There may have been other things Shirley could have done with her background in medicine, where she didn't have to deal with people, but I don't know. This is all a really huge red flag. So her supervising doctor had more to say later on in an interview with an assessment officer with the Office of Child and Youth Advocates, stating, You might say Shirley was a manipulative, guiltless psychopath, which is the medical term I would use, but at the time... We recognized that she was not always telling the truth about where she was all the time. And when confronted, she gradually escalated her response to a confrontation. And we never thought about having her assessed by a psychiatrist. It rarely comes to that in residency. People with major psychoses are usually picked up in medical school. The doctor did say in hindsight, and he emphasized in hindsight, that Shirley was at the time very cute and very petite, but she always seemed injured. She was just able to fool people. He also said that as a result of their experiences with Shirley, it prompted immediate and constructive changes in the residency evaluation process. So during this time getting into the 2000s, Shirley's older kids continued to live with and were supported by their father and his mother, and her youngest child lived and was supported by her father and a woman he was in a relationship with. Shirley herself was providing very little in the way of financial support for any of them, but it was around this time that she had the monthly baby bonuses to be paid to their fathers instead of herself. So by 2000, Shirley's eldest child, her son, would be turning 18. Her eldest daughter would be turning 15. And both of them were about to embark on some big changes in their lives. Her son wanted to begin undergraduate studies in the fall of 2000. This is what brought Shirley's finances under scrutiny, dating back to 1993 when she returned to Memorial University to finish her undergrad work. And much of what was being discovered was upsetting to her family and her kids' families. She was given student loans, but the loans were calculated all those years in undergrad and graduate school as if she had full-time custody of her children, which clearly she did not. It was also when her son wanted to go to undergraduate school that Shirley told one of her family members that she would have to help her son get a student loan so he could register. A family member reminded her that she had put his baby bonus money into a scholarship fund and it was then Shirley had to confess that she spent all the children's baby bonus money on her own tuition and living expenses the entire time she was in medical school. This angered that family member, but Shirley insisted she was on the cusp of earning big money as a doctor and she would help pay for all of her children's schooling. In order for her eldest son to get started off into school in the fall of 2000, he had to take out student loans, he worked one full-time job, and one part-time job at two different restaurants. Around the same time, Shirley's 15-year-old daughter, having just finished 10th grade, wanted to leave Parsons Pond, Newfoundland, and go to Ontario to pursue a romantic relationship with a teenage boy that she had met while he lived in Newfoundland. He moved to Ontario in the summer of 2000, and she had spent part of that summer with him there. She returned to Newfoundland to start the school year, but, with Shirley's permission, just three weeks later, she went back to Ontario and began living there, with her mother's blessings. Even though her daughter was only 15, Shirley paid for her to go back to Ontario and gave her money to continue going to school through homeschooling. This is an incident that should have prompted intervention by Child Protective Services. And yet another warning sign that something was not right with Shirley and her parenting. Yet another chance for her to have been investigated lost. Shirley's youngest daughter, going on 10 at this time, continued to live with her dad. By the summer of 2000, Shirley had satisfied all of the requirements of her residency training and was qualified to practice medicine. But we're going to take a pause in her timeline here and go back for a moment to discuss another incident in Shirley's life. Back to April of 1999, when she was still in her residency in Newfoundland. So the background to this goes back to about March of 1996 a year before the divorce from Shirley's second husband. She became acquainted with a man from St. John about nine years younger than herself. They began a romantic relationship in the winter of 1996. But a few months later, he attempted to end the relationship. Shortly before, his job was about to take him to another part of Newfoundland that was about a 10-hour drive from St. John's. As he was sure that a long-distance relationship would not work out for them. But Shirley wasn't having it. She inundated this man with phone calls at his new home the minute that he got a new phone number. When he would answer her calls, she spoke to him with a very high intensity, lots of force, lots of velocity. Then in November of 1997, this man had a career change which led him to enroll at a vocational school in Halifax, separating him from Shirley even more. But it did not stop her marathon of phone calls, which also included unwelcomed visits from her. This continued well into the summer of 1998. Shirley appeared at his front door, at which time he made the regretful decision to let her in. And then... She refused to leave. Instead of calling the police, he just sort of caved in and let her stay. And she stayed there until he finished his vocational training in July of 1998. There were two events in particular that stood out in this man's mind when recalling this period of time that Shirley was staying at his Halifax apartment uninvited. First, he recalled an evening when they were walking back to his apartment, and she was carrying her chunky high heel shoes in one of her hands, and, you know, those were popular at that time, those of you who remember. She was arguing with him, and suddenly, without warning, she assaulted him by hitting him in the face with one of her shoes. It was at that point that this man knew to never doubt Shirley's capacity for violence, despite her small size and stature. The second incident was another summer evening while there in Halifax. Shirley became completely overtaken by emotions. He couldn't remember what it was that set her off, but he ended up taking her by foot to a hospital. The emergency staff admitted Shirley into the hospital for overnight psychiatric examination. From this incident stemmed a need for Shirley to be treated as an outpatient in Halifax by a psychiatrist. And Dreamers, this is where we have yet another warning sign that something is off with Shirley. She was told she needed psychiatric treatment in Halifax. But who was going to enforce this and how was it going to be enforced, especially when she's headed back to Newfoundland? So later that summer of 1998, this man, after visiting his parents in St. John's, moved to the state of Pennsylvania. He assumed that would be the last he would hear from Shirley, but boy, was he wrong. Shirley drove from St. John's to his place in East Goshen Township, Pennsylvania, which is about 35 miles or 21 kilometers east of Philadelphia. And I mean, this drive is no joke. I looked it up on maps and it's a 35-hour drive. 2,900 kilometers or 1,800 miles and the fastest route requires a ferry, toll roads, private roads with restricted usage, international border crossing, and crosses a time zone. On the night of April 7th, 1999, some three years after meeting this man, two and a half years after dating him for like a minute Shirley showed up on his doorstep the next country over the thing is Shirley was in the beginning stages of a new relationship with a third year medical student at Memorial University at the same time but she had been unable to let go of this man for whatever reason so on this day April 7, 1999, just after 6 p.m. This man reported to the East Goshen Regional Police Department that when he arrived at the entrance of his apartment, slumped against the front door was Shirley. She was wearing a long black dress and cradled a bouquet of red roses in her left arm. On her, she had two letters that she had written. A four-page letter addressed to this man, and a one-page letter addressed to her former psychiatrist, who was living in the United States also. As this man approached, Shirley slowly lifted up her right arm. In her hand was a suicide note addressed to him. He took the note, and her arm slumped back down to the ground. In this note, Shirley wished the man a great life and also asked him to return her rental car and to divide her $60,000 life insurance policy between her three children and to tell her family that she wished to be cremated and inform a lifelong friend of hers that she named in the note by phone of her death. When paramedics and police arrived, this man informed them that he found her outside his apartment like this and said that she had taken some pills, and that she wanted to die. The investigation into this incident revealed that Shirley had taken 32 Unisom, which are sleeping pills, and 42 Nausein, which is for nausea relief. The boxes for these medications, along with an empty bottle of Pepsi and an empty bag of chips, were all found near the outside of the apartment building where she had told police she discarded them and the investigation into Shirley's supposed suicide attempt here revealed a couple of things. Ingesting a large amount of nausea would likely induce vomiting. Taking 32 Unisom would not be enough to cause death. American company FarmCorp had provided some insight into Shirley's suicide attempt and said that the person who consumed these two products was a medical practitioner who would have had a fundamental understanding of what effects to expect and in any case would have had access to more appropriate drugs to ensure success in committing suicide if that was indeed the intent. The paramedics took Shirley to the hospital. Her stomach was pumped and she recuperated. It is believed that this may or may not have been a genuine attempt at suicide. It's hard to say. But because she did it at the front door of this man's apartment, she likely knew that he would call for help and she would be okay, even if she thought the drugs were lethal. The next morning, the man arrived at work to find a voicemail waiting for him. The caller was female, and it was his opinion that it was Shirley attempting to disguise her voice, and it was obvious to him that it was her. She left a message saying that Shirley had died the night before. And it was because he had gotten so used to receiving calls and messages from her, he just knew it was her. She never stopped calling him, from the time that they broke up to the time that he arrived in Pennsylvania in September of 1998 into late 99 and into 2000. And in some of her calls, it was clear that she was under the influence, and many of them were threatening. You will die. I'll stab you. You'll soon be six feet under. The time will come when I will have to call your family and friends. He took all of these threats seriously and believed his life was in danger. And Shirley called this man's parents back in St. John's as incessantly as she called him. Both before and after Shirley's April 7, 1999 suicide attempt, she had appeared unannounced at this man's home in Pennsylvania numerous times. After the suicide attempt, he was afraid to respond to knocks at his door. Several times, it was Shirley knocking. And when she did, he would call the state troopers, and soon, he would be listening as they arrived and spoke to Shirley, telling her to leave the apartment building. On one occasion, Shirley called this man and told him that she and a friend were partying in New York and to come join them. He turned down the invitation but anticipated that the call would soon be eventually followed by a knock at the door by Shirley. And he was right. A day later, Shirley was knocking at his door. He called the state troopers again to get his fear of Shirley on the record as he told them he was not certain what she would do next. He said his dealings with Shirley required him to engage in a psychological game of chess in which he needed to start thinking at least four or five moves ahead of her. Later on, once this man had learned what Shirley had done the following year, he slept with his doors bolted. His roommates took turns sleeping on the couch in the living room for months with an axe. And here we arrive at yet another warning sign regarding Shirley's unstable behavior, and there is a police record of it. In the time surrounding this April 1999 suicide attempt, it was either sometime before or sometime after, it's not really clear, but very close to this time, that Shirley became acquainted with a California-born medical student he was completing his third year of medical school at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. At the time, Shirley was in her first year of her two-year family medicine residency program, and a romantic relationship seems to have commenced sometime in the period of March through June of 1999. He was 12 years and eight months younger than Shirley. And his name was Andrew David Bagby. And we are going to stop part one here of this series. Stay tuned for part two. We will pick up from where we left off. The wait will not be long. Thank you for listening. Until next time, sweet dreams.